man, 30 years, what's gonna, what, what is life going to look like 30 years from now? Like our kids are going to be probably grown and gone. Like this house will be paid off, which we don't even live in the house anymore. But like in your mind, you think about what 30 years looks like as soon as you're signing on with Wells Fargo in that way. Um, and, and we'd say, like, here's the age that they're going to be when they get paid off or when my kids are, and you play that little game. And then we refied, and then we bought, and then we sold. And now I think to myself, man, when my great-grandkids are a certain age, this house is going to be paid off, and it's going to be amazing. Uh, there comes a point with a 30-year mortgage uh, where you realize, this is crazy, and it might be a little dark, 30-year mortgages might not be an option for you any longer. I'm like, dad is 63 years old. Like, if he goes into Giza tomorrow and be like, I'd like to apply for 30-year mortgage, they're going to ask for some blood work and a physical. You know what I mean? Like, that's kind of a, a lot for it. And we're conditioned to live as if the foreseeable future will be much like our past, our current past, which is why when a mortgage company agrees to lend you a large chunk of cash, they want evidence to support that your income stream is relatively stable, that barring unforeseen circumstances, and that's the big asterisk or whatever, but you should be able to make the monthly payments of 1200 bucks a month, and blah, 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 blah. And inherent in their risk assessment is some modicum of or optionality of failure. Like there's going to be uh, something that might come along, and they have to assess that risk as a part of them lending you this money. And since this series is about failure, I figure I better turn the corner on that at some point and get away from this age thing because it's a little uncomfortable in this room right now. So what happens if then I fail, right? Because anytime you sign on for something, you don't go into it with this idea of, I can't wait to like be uh, overdrafted on this mortgage. You go into it thinking, I'm, this is going to happen. Like This number seems feasible based on my uh, income to debt ratio and the numbers and the percentages and how much I make. And you know, this job seems very secure. My boss seems to like me, blah, blah, blah. We, we play all these scenarios out. And what we don't think about is being able to fail in that scenario of repayment. We think about our kids growing up in this home, what we're going to do with the siding, the way we're going to paint it, then we're going to add a hot tub, we're going to add a this, we're going to do all kinds of different things to make this home kind of our place. And so we, we dream about all the positives. We don't really spend time thinking a lot of times about the failure or the potential of failure because that doesn't feel like it's really in play at this point. The option that things might not turn out this way sort of makes us uncomfortable, and since we don't like to be uncomfortable, we don't do it. And we said last week in, in part one of this series that we tend to be, uh, most of us, many of us, uh, a little bit more failure-averse. We don't like the idea of failure. We hide it. We spin it. We promise to be better because of it. We try and talk about when failure comes and the inevitability of it that we w will truly be better off for this. I, I recognize that I failed, but who hasn't? We, we, we point the finger at other people. Uh, and then we quickly talk about our successes in other areas, and we talk about how this too will be turned into a success, and we'll make a bunch of money doing something uh, legal with spreadsheets or whatever. Um, we keep things alive sometimes longer, dreams alive, things alive, whatever, longer than we should sometimes because we hate the idea of being associated with a failure. We look at it, and it's going to fail. We kind of know it, but we just want to keep this thing alive. We talked about that with cars last week or whatever. And it inhibits, as we said, looking at the Ecclesiastes text last week in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that kind of living, being failure-averse and not embracing the endings of things very well and not understanding how to do that very well inhibits our ability to celebrate the seasonality of that which is life. We think to ourselves, I don't like the idea of there is a time to win and a time to lose. There's a time to gain and a time to lose. There's a time to harvest and a time to sow and a time to work and a time to sleep and a time to whatever. I want all of the things all of the time. I want all of the high expectations all of the time. We don't like to hear there's a time for winning 
and which is quickly followed up for, by a time for losing. We don't want that. In fact, whenever I, I do weddings, a lot of times the thing that I've integrated lately is that, you know, the whole phrase of for richer or for poorer, but like hopefully for richer, right? And everybody giggles and laughs because that's how we often feel. Like, who wants to be married for poorer? You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't sound fun at all. Or maybe that's not you, right? So we said that's definitely a piece that's an angle that we're coming from. But today, um, what I want to say, and, and the kind of people that I want to address, if you're watching this or whatever, is that maybe that's not you. There is an alternative way of looking at failure, a more, maybe you would say, seasoned approach to it. It's not failure necessarily that you're afraid of. You've matured beyond your fear of failure. You failed enough in life to know that it's never oftentimes as bad as we initially feared it would be. Failures we say a part of life and whatever, it's kind of overhyped maybe a little bit. It's underrated. It bears little weight to the overall trajectory of your life. Um, you failed enough to know that like, as it happened, you were so stressed about it going into it. And then when it failed, you realized it wasn't, again, as bad as you originally thought. So therefore, you're just like, maybe failure is not a terrible issue here. Something far more insidious, perhaps, uh, in your eyes uh, is associated with failure. And that thing that is more insidious than failure is the false hope that failure provides us with that removes our responsibility to see that things are broken and the need to change the status quo. Perhaps you view failure as an inevitability of life and you see it as maybe a good thing because for things to go on just conditionally as they are, that's not, I mean, when we say 30 years from now, the bank is assessing your your financial situation saying nothing's gonna change, you look at that and be like, I don't know, do I want a flat line of 30 years, if I get one shot at this life thing, am I okay with just that kind of st- stability in this way? Failure in this sense means the departure from status quo. Perhaps that not, is not necessarily a bad thing. And we watched um, over the past few months as uh, like riots and things have been going on, this like rise of this kind of sense of an anarchy. And, and we can look at it and, and, and think to ourselves kind of one of two things. One that feels very, um, some of it's self-serving. Uh, I get it. I understand. Like, they're running into Target, grabbing all the things, hoarding themselves. That's, that's not really anarchy. That's just theft, right? Um, but when we look at, like, anarchy in terms of let's burn this thing down, we can, underst- we can sit here sometimes and go, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I don't like that at all. Um, I get it. But some, for them, the idea that a slight modification isn't necessarily as good as or it doesn't provide the foundation for actually what we need, which is basically to burn it to the ground and start over. I mean, um, 1776 is a celebration of people who said, enough with this, we're going to separate from this. It's not enough to just modify the taxation without representation. We're going to disassociate completely, and we celebrate it in that way. So in, in a sense, there can become a problem so big that like a slight change and a slight modification just isn't enough. It feels like there needs to be a little bit more there. Let's take it out of the political realm for a little bit and just talk about a guy named Chris, uh, Chris Weathersby, who was known as the Goat Man in Corinth, Vermont. Let me tell you why he was called the Goat Man and why you don't want to be called the Goat Man, all right? Um, he bought a ranch out in the middle of nowhere. He kind of moved from a big city and wanted the, um, wanted the ability to kind of sort of live off the grid. He had uh, recently espoused some Buddhist beliefs and was like, I just wanted to kind of do my own thing without anybody having to tell me what to do. And this ranch that he bought came with three goats. And because of his Buddhist beliefs, he believed that it would be, you know, against their nature to isolate from each other, to have, like, you know, to kind of keep them separated from each other. No castration, no slaughtering, just whatever. Well, within four years, he had 252 goats, because he let goats do what goats do. 
Uh, and unfortunately, because of his Buddhist belief, as it got cold in the winter, as it does in Vermont, he felt bad for the moms and the little kids and the infirmed and all of those. And so he invited them into his ranch house um, up to 70 at that point to live through the winter. The problem was that when the winter blew off and the, the warmth came in, he didn't kick them out of the house. And so then everybody got to come in. And eventually, a, a few years after this all went down, it continued to go. When animal, cult, animal control came inside the house, which they do, right? Uh, there were so many layers of hay and excrement. And excrement wasn't the word that was in the article that I read, but like there's some kids here today. So there was so much hay and excrement that they had to duck their heads to avoid hitting the ceiling uh, with their heads. Um, it was so bad. In an interview, a neighbor said very diplomatically, well, he was trying, you know, dot, dot, dot. He had a sort of a problem. Yeah, no kidding. He had that sort of a problem, right? Um, the goat man in, in Connecticut. So what do you do when you're animal control or when you're, I don't know, anybody coming in uh, to a house with a house like that? What, what do you do? Do you grab a shovel and a can of spray paint and just go for it? Or at some point, do you vote to raise it to the ground? This is beyond redemption, right? We have to start over. Like, what good is a bucket of bleach water with a problem this big? That is a fair question to ask in this way. Campaign slogans, uh, since they became a thing, um, speak of things like hope, change, onwardness, maybe even greatness or whatever. Election seasons have a way of reigniting pangs of futility as it relates to political change. And yet here we are every four years hearing the message from whoever spouting it off that if you vote me in, things will be different. This time, it will be different and different and different. And it's just failure redefined year after year in this way. Perhaps the only thing more frightening than the possibility of failure is annihilation, or failure by, by annihilation is the possibility that we just go on doing this forever, keep putting our hopes in terms of dreams and whatever every four years and just not really understanding the futility that that oftentimes brings. Um, coasting on forever, sort of like a Rome without Attila to sack its palaces or a Nineveh without God to pass judgment on its crimes. <clears throat> Last week I ended with sort of a teaser. I uh, I said, what happens to us when we hold on too long to our fear of failure? What does uh, our failure averseness or our risk averseness or whatever do to us when we refuse to let things die and celebrate them and refuse to really appreciate the seasonality of life that is encompassed in the talk of Ecclesiastes? And what does any of this have to do with waiting for the barbarians as we talk about? Um, Here's the reveal. Here's what you came for. Um, Waiting for the Barbarians was a poem written by C.P. Cavafy in 1909. Um, he was a Greek historian. He studied the rise and the fall of Greek and then Roman empires and how, how something so big could fail, how something in, with that big of control and that big of reach. And um, it's relatively relevant information for the fact that we live in a global superpower and everybody uh, looks to us in this scenario and is watching. I mean, people will be watching our election night probably more than they even watch their election nights. Um, and it addresses, his poem addresses this psychological slash cultural predicament. Is failure really the worst thing, right? And I'm not predicting the failure of America. I'm not, like, that's hyperbole again. I'm just saying, um, envision, this, this poem envisions a Roman-style city, even though it's left unnamed, where everyone expects these barbarians uh, to roll in at any moment and for chaos to ensue and or the next phase of things to take place. So I'm going to read it for you. We're going to read this 
old 100-year-old poem together on the screen. If you're watching this online, the, old, the whole thing is in uh, the notes page. I, I sent a link to that um, so you can follow along there. Or if you're sitting here today and I go too fast, you can also do that. Uh, here's how the poem begins. with It's question and answer, Q&As. What are we waiting for assembled in the forum? You got these slides, Andrew? He's working on them. There we go. Uh, Oh, he didn't have the person. That's probably Okay, what are we waiting for? Assemble the forum. The barbarians are due here today. Why isn't anything happening in the Senate? Why do the senators sit there without legislating? Because the barbarians are coming today. What laws can the senators make now? Once the barbarians are here, they'll do the legislating. Well, why did our emperor get up so early, and why is he sitting at the city's main gate on his throne in state wearing the crown? Because the barbarians are coming today. What laws can the senators make now? Once the barbarians are here, they'll be the ones doing the legislating. Why did our emperor... Uh, oh, I, I, sorry. I, I read that again. Go to the next slide for me. There we go. Why, why did our emperor get up so early? Why is he sitting on the city's main gate on his throne uh, in state wearing uh, this sort of crown? Uh, because the barbarians are coming today and the emperor is waiting to receive their leader. He's prepared a scroll to give to him, replete with titles and imposing names. Uh, why, is that, why is it that our consuls and our praetors have come out today wearing their scarlet togas with their rich embroidery? And why have they donned their uh, amulets with their, all of their amethysts and rings with their magnificent glistening emeralds? Why is it that they're carrying such precious snow, uh, staves today, maces chased uh, exquisitely with silver and with gold? Because the barbarians are going to arrive today. And things like that bedazzle the barbarians. Why do our worthy orators not come today as usual to deliver their addresses, each to say his own piece? Because the barbarians are coming today. They're going to arrive, and they're bored by eloquence of public speaking. Why this sudden, and then this takes a turn, why this sudden restlessness, this confusion? How serious people's faces have become. Why are the streets and squares emptying so rapidly, everyone going home so lost in thought? Because night has fallen, and the barbarians have not come, and some who have just returned from the border say, there are no barbarians any longer. And then the final question, what is to become of us without barbarians? We have these high hopes for these barbarians. Not high hopes, we act like it's negative. We think the world's going to end today, um, and then all of a sudden we are thrown off because there seems to be no barbarians. And so the final question of the poem is, what's to become of us without barbarians? Only in the final line does the, does the author, Cavafy, give the, the proceedings sort of an unexpected twist and tell us what's really behind this whole thing. The emperor and the rest of the people, we learn, are actually, in a way, looking forward to the barbarian's arrival, embracing failure. Again, like we talked about, we're so failure-averse, but then at some point we get so seasoned, we're like, actually, failure might not be a terrible thing. We were, in a sense, sort of hoping that they would come. The final line being, perhaps these people were a solution of a sort. Perhaps this failure is one that we can embrace. Perhaps there become failures in our life where we go, that's good. I needed to fail in that because I needed to, uh, I, I, I don't want to just be the same. I, I don't want the status quo to be the defining feature of all of this. I asked uh, Megan this week. Megan does uh, some of our pre-service stuff. She also came on um, and, and is doing some admin stuff for the church. So if you get emails about like next steps and prayer requests and stuff, it's usually from her. 
and she's really smart. And so I, I, I typically have her when we are doing normal services with two services, I meet with her in between services and run through the notes and say which jokes worked, which jokes didn't, and which, what thought was not unclear, which needs some more clarity, that kind of thing. So I asked her this week to read this poem and give me her thoughts on it, to write it up in an email, to make sure I'm not out in left field in this interpretation for it. So here's what she wrote. Here's what she wrote. She wrote, first off, this is the best job I've ever had, and you're the best boss anybody could ever ask for. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Okay, okay, here's where she gets into it. All right, sorry. <laughs> she said, I think it's about secretly hoping for something to fail so that you can start over. Secretly hoping something will fail so that you can start over. Or maybe even not be responsible for the failure anymore, as in our society, in this case, the society is dwindling, but if the barbarians come, then it's their fault that we failed and not ours. Again, removing fault, pushing the blame to other people in this way. I thought it was an interesting take. What is it about us that, how do we, how do we interpret even our failed hopes right? When, when these hopes fail, what part of it, what does that say about us? We're checking our motives in terms of watching failure or secretly hoping things will fail. This is true for us, and it shows up in scripture as well. Luke, the first century doctor who decided to write his personal research account of the life and the teachings of the Jewish carpenter turned religious leader named Jesus. Um, in Luke chapter 24, kind of late in his, con- his uh, story, so this is after um, the Last Supper, after death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, one of his appearances that he would talk about, like Jesus appeared to the people after he even died to kind of validate this idea of a thought of a resurrection. So um, <clears throat> this is uh, him writing this. It's called the, the passage header, if you had your Bible with you and it was open, would say something about the road to Emmaus or something like that. Chapter 24, verse 13 through 25. Now the same day, that same day, as in Easter Sunday, this is the same day that the women have come back from the tomb going, it's empty, we don't know what's happening, the body's been taken Um, and or we saw something, whatever, depending on the thing that you read. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were going home, basically, because they had come into town because of Passover weekend, festival weekend, and they were heading home. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up, and he walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, it does not go into detail as to how this actually happened, so often we're left to assume some sort of supernatural Jedi mind trick, right? Like he disguises his his face or something like that. He asked them, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. They stopped walking. They looked at him with downcast faces. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Which is kind of a, you know, Missouri sort of way of saying, what, are you a dumbest bag of rocks? Like that's essentially what's being asked in that way. If you're from Missouri, I apologize. I just, I've been watching Ozark lately, so it just rings true. I see, I can see them saying that. All right, what things, verse 19, what things he, sa- he asked? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. A couple of things in this passage. One, they did not immediately, one, again, believe these women who came back and told them this story. There are all kinds of things for that. Um, They, at this point, believed he was a prophet. 
um, who was powerful in word and deed, the, the idea that Jesus would become known as the Son of God or um, as a figure of that or part of a trinity or whatever, shows that that was not immediately at, at, uh, at play here. They immediately just thought, really good person um, who, who ended up dying, who was handed over, by the way, by our chief priests and our rulers, the pronouns that they're using, our rulers, our people, like we the people that we put in authority, our leadership. This is an uh, intrinsic critique of the, 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 way, the system that they were under. They handed him over to be crucified, and they crucified him. So there's this categorical difference between us as Jewish people, uh, as, as the low, the layman or whatever, versus the religious leaders in this way. They would go on to talk about uh, the women who saw the empty tomb and the story of the missing body walking home confused. They, they find themselves in this spot where we just don't know. Like, it's not enough. It's not confusion enough to motivate us to, to stay in town and get this thing figured out. We got to get home and get to our families. But we are walking home a little bit confused. Jesus, as it would go on, if you keep reading those verses, would eventually reveal himself, and this would serve as one of the resurrection stories that is oftentimes brought up at Easter. If you come on Easter Sunday, I'd be like, listen, this is crazy. Nobody expected a body. None of them looked and go, are, are you Jesus? Hang on. We, we, we were told three days, and it's been three days. So we're asking everybody that we come into contact with today, are you Jesus? Like, for them, there was no expectation of a resurrected Messiah, right? So that was not something they had placed on Jesus. That was not a constructed thing, story that we're going to go with. Everybody believed this as we head out of town, which is kind of a big deal. But that's for another day. Today's focus comes with this next verse, verse 21. And it says this, after they had done these things, this is how they conclude their kind of talk to Jesus. They say, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. We had placed a little bit of hope, failure, expectation uh, that through Jesus, God would work for the nation to deliver it into a new era of freedom. This is the exact same kind of hope that Luke wrote about a few chapters earlier when John the, Baptism's, uh, John the Baptist, his birth announcement is made. And his father, Zechariah, sees this child or hears about this birth of this child, and it, there's a, he writes a song, which is kind of a weird deal. But he writes, it's captured for us, it's called Zechariah's Song on the top of it. And in it, he, this is the song in Luke chapter 1, right at the very beginning of this thing. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, because he, he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to his father Abraham, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This we had hoped for was not like them uniquely hoping. This was a pattern of the people of this time who were hoping for some sort of a political release from the oppression of Rome so that Israel can once again be the, the nation, the kind of people that Israel was promised that they would be, that God would not go back on his promise to make you know, Abraham into this mighty nation. This was uh, a political, social sort of uh, expectation this is what they were thinking of. There comes then this, this amazing shift, though, this evolution of sorts captured for us in the book of Acts. This is important to know that this comes pre-Acts, pre-the church. This is their expectation going into this because then what we see in Acts is then begin to shift away from this redemption of Israel into this new exposition of the church is what's going on. 
There's an evolution captured for us on what the vehicle of salvation for the world looks like, and it's no longer a nation. See, we now assume, like, we're, we have expectations. We want to help, you know, politically uh, be a part of Israel and, and, and not have them, you know, t- taken over or do this. And depending on kind of where you're at politically, the nation of Israel has this thing. But for, for, for most of us, we don't think that that nation thing uh, is the pathway towards redemption. We see it as like this personal relationship with Jesus, and that is a new thing. That was not what they had hoped for. The hope for them was freedom politically. And they wanted the failure of their current political system so that out of the ashes could rise Israel being the righteous ruling nation that they were supposed to be, a theocracy put on display for the world. And over time in the book of Acts, what we see in this New Testament is this evolution from that sort of thinking, from a political social sort of thinking towards this, what if a group of people lived in the way of Jesus? What if they, aka the church, became something that could change the world? What if it was no longer a theocracy or legislation that had been baptized in the waters of righteousness, and instead it became something else? In the barbarian's poem, what do the councils the praetors have in their hands and on their bodies? They have gold, crowns, amulets, all the things that, quote-unquote, bedazzle the barbarians. How do they know that they bedazzle them? But but bedazzle. <laughs> there you go. Um, because they probably think these people must be a lot like us. We don't even know who they are, right? They're not even named in the poem. We don't, we don't know who they are, but we, we assume that they're a lot like us. And these things bedazzle us. So why in the world wouldn't they bedazzle them? In other words, we kind of want all of this torn down, but what we want rebuilt isn't all that different from what it currently looks like. We just think we failed at it, but we can be a part of this for this other thing. So the Jewish people, these people walking home who are right next to Jesus, Jesus is basically asking them, what was the thing that you hoped for? We hoped that the Romans would be overcome so that Israel could once again be the theocracy that it needed to be. And Jesus is sitting there going, that's, but that's not the plan. That's not what we're doing. That's not it at all. Like he's trying to change their minds about this. He's trying to address this. And, and what would happen eventually as we know from like world history, from your history books that are even secular, whatever, that a few years after Jesus walked on the planet, in AD 70, the Assyrians came in and ransacked Rome, and it was, in, or sorry, not Rome, they ransacked Jerusalem, or up from the north, the Roman Empire came in in AD 70, and ransacked the whole thing, burned everything down, and the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed, the walls were destroyed, there was a siege for like two years, many, many people died, and everything about like religion, the Jewish religion as a structure and as a, as, a, as a thing was completely wiped out, any expectations on a national and social unit are completely gone, which is fine because Jesus had already established that that was never the plan in the first place. That is a failure that is actually good to fail. That in, that we, we, we embrace that so that we can change the status quo to be something different. See, a lot of times for us, we're too caught up in the disappointment of failed politics that we miss the person standing right beside us asking, what are you guys talking about? What things are you secretly hoping that will fail so that you too can build up something new in its place? And my answer and our answer and the answer that Jesus provides and the New Testament provides, if you read through that book of Acts, is the church centered around Christ and his way of doing things is the hope of the world. 
It's not a baptized theocracy. It's not a certain political party in all three offices of the, the government. We've been there on both sides. We've tried it. It's an exercise in futility. It's failure redefined. Our hope, like I think you should still vote. I think all of I'm voting. All of that, all of those things. But it comes down to ultimate hope of this. Is this gonna? Is that what's gonna be? Is gonna save the world? This person coming in and doing things? No. It's that's not it. As we read this, and as we're reminded this week on a, on, a, on a week that we're definitely going to be sitting in front of our TVs on Tuesday night, as you should be. Again, it doesn't happen all that often. You should make it happen. It's a lesson in civics, yada, 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 yada. But let us not be the type of person who's walking down the road going, we were kind of hoping, gosh, we were hoping that our guy would figure this out, or we're hoping this new guy would figure it out, or this new girl, or whatever. And Jesus is sitting there right along the entire time introducing us, welcoming in, in, us, us into this new way of doing things. It's not really all that new anymore. It's 2,000 years old, where the church is the hope of the world. Maybe, we're not, and, and I, I don't mean, by the way, when I say church, I know that the, that can be politicized, because which church? Like the Christian church, not the Catholic church, or this church, or this thing? I just mean a group of people across the world, not just East, like a group of people who have a common unity. The, the thing that commonly binds us together is we're trying to figure out how to do life in the way that Jesus talked about it. And whether all the politics of, of, of the denominational policies or whatever aside, I just mean that. If people lived in that way, that, if that's the thing that unites us as we move forward in this, that really does have the potential to like, bring change in this world. And the failure of something else is kind of fine. May we not miss Jesus on our way home from experiences filled with deflated or maybe overhyped expectations, maybe even this Tuesday, right? May we live together as if a community centered around Jesus could actually be the hope of the world. And I, I think that that has way more power to deliver any sort of meaningful change. And, and does it mean that I'm hopeful for the downfall of America? Absolutely not. I love living here, right? I'm very much a proud American, right? All of that thing. But I'm trying to make sure my hopes aren't centered around anything that's not me being a part of a community trying to live this out, trying to live out what would Jesus do right now? How would he treat people? How would he love people? How would he care for people? That, I think, has just got more fruit and more length and more runway than anything else that we have. So may that go with you this week as you vote, as you watch, and as you wake up on Wednesday and take your political sign out of your yard, and please do that. Um, all of those things, may we wake up on Wednesday with a hope, regardless of whether we won or lost, that the hope has never, ever been in this, in a broken person or a broken political system, but on something far more firm the way of Jesus. All right, let's pray. Father, our prayer is that that would be true, that as we kind of sort of wait for the barbarians and, and do all of these, that, our, uh, that we may not, may we not miss you walking beside us, challenging our questions, challenging our, our hopes. Why do we secretly hope that this will fail? Why do we secretly hope that this will succeed? What are we doing with this? May we not miss out on what you're inviting us into, which I think is just a, a bigger, uh, a bigger uh, opportunity, a bigger field to play in. So, Give us wisdom this week on what that looks like in our lives, specifically, specifically on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, and give us the wisdom to live that out in your name. Amen. All right. 
That's as political as I'll get this week, you guys, I promise. All right, uh, inside of, uh, on your seats, as you sat down, if you're in this room or if you're watching online, uh, on your seats, there's a connect card in there. We'd love for you to fill it out, give us an information on uh, who's with you today, any prayer requests, live updates. If you're watching this online, um, then if you're watching on the desktop version, just scroll down, you'll see a connect card below. Or if you're in the app, you're gonna have to get out of the app, go back into the connect card, but please, please, please fill this out. It's our only way of tracking who's with us, uh, whether in person or online and how we can continue to be in communication with you, uh, as well as if you're a first-time guest watching with us or here this morning, make sure to mark that box that says first-time guest. We have a thing where we donate money to a different organization doing good things locally and globally, and for the month of November, uh, it is, I believe it's Safe Harbor? Yeah, Safe Harbor is, is what we're doing this month. So uh, crisis, preg- uh, crisis uh, nursery over in Kennewick that kind of houses some kids during times when things are a little restless at home. Uh, so let us know you're here. Uh, lastly, if you didn't do it last night, make sure to tag us in a photo of your kids' costumes. Uh, we're going to be giving out some candy prizes because we couldn't do our normal Halloween thing uh, here at the Uptown this year because they canceled it. Um, so if you haven't already done so, post some pictures of your kids, tag Eastlake in it, and we'll do our best to kind of figure out how to get some candy uh, some safely into your kid's hand. Uh, last but not least... Uh, Lauren has been, our new Wear Love pastor has been working tirelessly on some Wear Love opportunities considering the circumstances has been a little bit difficult, but um, we are, uh, we have two reservations signed up for Soul Soup, which is the soup kitchen that operates in East Kennewick for homeless people. Um, we uh, we want to form a team to be able to go. It's really small because they can only do a certain amount of people, but they are still very much operating because people need it. Um, so let us know if you're interested in something like that. Take your family out, take your kids out, do something uh, in that way. And then lastly, uh, our Operation Christmas Child Box. I'm going to step aside real quick and grab one and show you what this looks like. We've got a few of these uh, available in the lobby today for those of you who are here. If you're not here uh, or if you're watching this online, uh, these will be available uh, midweek. Just text us, email us uh, at info at East Lake Tri-Cities. We'll set up a time for you to come pick one of these up. Or you can use really any shoebox. You don't need one of these. These are just pretty. Um, take, these are designed for um, anybody, but specifically parents with kids, to take them shopping for things uh, for kids like them, things that they would want, and then you buy it, but then you don't give it to them, and you give it to somebody else. So it's like a lesson in, like, we're tricking you, but we're also doing things for other people. Um, so that's a good thing, I think. Anyways, my kids, it makes it better for them. Then you put a label on here for what age group and what gender, and then uh, Samaritan's Purse collects all of these and ships them to developing countries around the world, third, third, third world countries for kids who otherwise might not get anything for Christmas. So um, there is a drop-off uh, for these two weeks from today. So we have two weeks to take these home, fill these up, and, uh, and get those back to us, and we'll do the drop-off later on in November. All right, that's going to do it for this morning. I'm going to read you a benediction and then get you on your way. Here's what it says. Lord, your saints come from every nation and every tribe. Such is the beauty of your kingdom where every race and people are honored and recognized as being made in your image. Help us live lives of peace and reconciliation that pay homage to the diversity of your great cloud of witnesses. Amen. May that go with you this week, whatever it is that you're facing. Um, we, uh, We love you. We miss you all. For those of you who are watching on there, have a great week, and we'll see you back next week. See ya.